listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honoured to welcome back to our show Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, part of the Presbyterian Church USA. Reverend Madeline, welcome back to our show. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you back, genuinely. And, and you wanted to, to talk today about caregiving. And um, let's start with, with essentially caregiving burnout. And yeah. So let's, let's start with what is it about caregiving work that makes it so hard for the caregiver to, to take care of themselves? Right. So I think starting by just noting caregiving is work that is caring for others. Caregiving mm-hmm. work is paid. It is also unpaid. Right. Um, probably the vast majority of caregiving work is unpaid labor by primarily women. Um, and so part of what makes it so hard for the worker to take care of themselves is that A, it may not be paid work. Right. But I think B, and perhaps more importantly, it's work that must be done. You can't not do it. Right. Someone needs to ta- be taken care of. Um, obviously, the most obvious example is when you are taking care of a child or an elderly relative, someone has to do it. That work must be done. Right. Um, but it is also true in a number of professions. Uh, clergy being uh, the obvious example for you and me, but also teaching, uh, nursing, being a doctor, being a social worker. So many of those professions involve work that is emotional, occasionally physical, especially if you're working in nursing, um, and involves a lot of labor that is making sure that other people are prepared for the world. And so it's very hard to take a step back, to take a break, to disconnect yourself. Um, And so you wind up uh, super wrapped up in all these people and all their lives and the, their deep sadnesses and their deep joys. And it's very hard to like say, okay, and now I'm going to take my day off and you may not call me. Right. And I won't answer your emails or your text messages, or your smoke signals, or however else you're going to try to communicate with me on this one day a week that I have for myself. You mentioned look, looking after children and our elderly relatives. I guess especially as we move through this pandemic, it's also partners and siblings. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's been quite a profound social change. People who we, we almost expect there's almost a, a social contract. You take care of the young and the old. Um, now, whether or not people uh, hold by that social contract is a different <laughs> matter, but, it, but it's there. It's a general understanding. I think what for me, what's been a profound change in our society is suddenly people who are neither children nor very elderly are requiring a lot of care, a lot of assistance. Mm -hmm. And so it's created a whole new generation of almost untrained caregivers, um, partners, siblings, um, Mm -hmm. and and so on. And I think caring for someone who is 
um, more or less your peer mm. is a very different thing than caring for someone who is um, a child, which feels in some respects very natural, right. right? They're younger than you. Of course, they need help or they're elderly. And I, mean, for, I picked up some elderly gentleman's coat in the parking lot today as he was walking along with his walker. It fell out and I could see the progression of his feet are going to get tangled. He is going to fall on his face. Right. And so I scooped the coat up for this stranger and he was a little embarrassed, I think, um, to be helped by a young woman. Um, but at the same time, we have this social contract that we're going to do this. Right. It's very hard both for the caregiver and the person receiving care when the person receiving care is, is about the same age or is a peer or doesn't yet feel quote unquote elderly right. or disabled or has no experience with receiving care. It's uh. it, There's an additional emotional labor that the caregiver has to do because not only are you providing care that is required, you're having to convince the person who requires the care that they do, in fact, require care, which is, um, it's a trick. Right, right. And I, I wonder, I, I wonder coming from this, for those who, for example, long-haul COVID has affected so many people in in this country, in Santa Fe. Um, people who suffer from it know that they're suffering from it. Mm -hmm. And and the awareness of what it is, is has been really spread um, quite noticeably. Um, so I, it's not necessarily that they know that they, that they need convincing for care but rather almost feeling like a burden mm -hmm. feeling I shouldn't be, um, I, right. I shouldn't be a, a burden, let's say, which mm -hmm. um, I don't think many caregivers feel that it's a burden, but I, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be doing this for you. So there's almost um, that com in some sense, you're right that they have no experience receiving care, but there's more than that. There's that guilt. I'm not right. a child. I'm not an, an elderly person. So I feel mm -hmm. bad for taking you out of your life. Right. To um, to have to take care of me almost. Mm -hmm. So I think many, especially if they've been doing caregiving for um, elderly relatives, I think that is often a part of that experience because there is a shift in who is giving and receiving. My, right. my mom was the primary caregiver for her mom for 10 years until her death early in COVID. Um, and there was, it's a really hard shift um, when you become the primary caregiver for your parent. Right. Um, and she, my grandmother, would say, you know, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to burden you. I don't want to burden your family. My sister was still in high school when she moved in with my parents. Um, you know, I don't want to burden you. I don't want to weigh you down. And, right. you know, we, I mean, there were obviously practical aspects to it that, yes, we're a slog and we're hard and they sucked, you know, like organizing prescriptions and making yes. sure the pills have been laid out. And, you know, as someone gets older, and loses independence, you know, the hardest thing is convincing them that they have lost independence. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was a gift that she gave mm. us, um, the ability to take care of her at the end of her life. And I was um, really present with my family in that last nine months that she was with us, and it was such a gift. And it was, and it was also, yes, a terrible burden, right. but it was a burden I was honored to carry. And it was a burden my mom was honored to carry. And it was a, and it's, but it is, a, there is a weight to it. I think we think of burdens as 
necessarily negative. Right. But loving people, loving human beings with their faults and foibles and frailties is about being willing to take on that burden. I've, uh, with regards to the to the burden idea, I often see it as as a group of people trying to climb up a mountain. And we're all trying to get to the peak. And we each family or each person may have their different understanding of where the peak is. Um, and if I, I, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't give this metaphor because the only mountain I've climbed in my life was Snowden and you just, <laughs> you just walk up it. But um, on the assumption that different people take the load at different times okay. and different people have different skills. And so sometimes you're climbing up the mountain and you're all able to do it together. And sometimes the strongest person with the group or the person with the most resources in the group, mm -hmm. like the person with the crampons, they're the one who's going to hold on to the mountain. And sometimes they have to carry that. So the reason I share that is the idea that it may be a burden in the sense of weighing you down as you climb up the mountain, but wasn't the point that we were all going to get up right. to that peak at the end together. Right. Um, and so some people naturally take the load more than others. Yeah. And I think, right, one of the difficulties is that we're so independent. Right. Um, and not just independent, individualistic. Um, and so caregiving on both ends, both the giving and the receiving, um, run very counter to that, right? Because right. Uh, the way that American society works, it says that we're not supposed to depend on other people. Um, I mean, right, like the, you can't see me, I'm doing like the biggest scare quotes yeah, right, in the right. history of ever, right? Like the idea that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, um, which if you have ever worn a pair of boots <laughs> with straps, you will know that this is impossible because you are pulling your own foot up off the ground. Right. You cannot do it. Um, but we have this idea that it somehow has come to mean the opposite, right? That like, you can do it on your own by yourself. You don't need anyone else. And like, that is the biggest, fattest lie there is. We all need someone else. Right. I think as well as the social challenges, mm -hmm. um, of individualism and feeling like you're a burden, there's, I mean, bluntly in this country, when people are sick, having to navigate insurance companies, oh, which, you know, I come from England and we, we have a totally different experience where you go, the doctor tells you you need this medicine and then you go to the chemist, we call it the pharmacy, mm -hmm. and they fill out the prescription and you go home and that's it. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the difficulties of being a caregiver in this country, I have found, is particularly having to learn how to negotiate insurance companies. For sure. And not just their bureaucracy, but their very clear gender bias. Oh, man. That, that, the, um, <laughs> that being a, I mean, quite bluntly, being a man with an English accent is very helpful in navigating <laughs> um in navigating insurance companies and getting things done where mm -hmm. we constantly read and hear of stories of women who tried who are sick and by themselves as well who have to navigate this who it's not successful for them so i wonder if part of this is just part of the difficulty the challenge of being a caregiver in this country is literally navigating insurance issues well, and then, like, let's take it a, ba a step back because to have health insurance, you have to work. Right, right. Um, and we have, in New Mexico, we are lucky that we have 
if you are working full time, what works out to about 10 days of sick leave a year. That's basic required mandated by state law, which like, thank you, New Mexico state legislature. Um, But if you don't have that and, and so many people in this country don't have that, um, where are you going to get the time? Right. Um, in order to care give for someone else. Um, so maybe you take fewer hours or maybe you take shifts that don't actually allow you to get a full night's sleep right. ever. Um, maybe you take a job that isn't safe because it will provide health insurance for your family. Maybe you have a newborn and you have to go back because you have no parental leave. Right. Um, and so Yes, the health insurance system in this country is um, a huge part of the burden of that interpersonal caregiving that we see, particularly among families. Um, But I think an understated part of that, and a part of that that falls very heavily, again, with the gender on women, Mm -hmm. is the lack of structures in place in the workplace writ large um, to support people as they support each other. Um, I am very, very lucky to be an employee of the Presbyterian Church USA. Um, My presbytery just on Saturday passed that we have to have 12 weeks paid parental leave. End of story. Right. If you are a clergy person in our presbytery, you have that benefit. Um, And like in other parts of the world, you get like 18 months. Yeah. Because... The reality of caregiving is that it is work. Yes. It is a huge amount of work. We need to take a break. When we come back, let's look a little at the particular challenges of clergy work in caregiving. And let's also look at self-care and what does that mean? So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. We've been talking in the first half about the challenges of caregiving. And let's talk just a little about, uh, I mean, obviously we're here to support those who are, you know, as you mentioned, not just clergy, but teachers, social workers, medicine, people involved in medicine. But what's the unique challenge of caregiving in in clergy work for you? I think for me, some of it is the depth and breadth to which we are involved in people's lives. Um, You know, the the sort of the trite thing about clergy is we, and for Christians, right, we baptize, we marry, we bury. So we have you for the whole trajectory of your life. And, uh, you know, you may not be, it may not be the same clergy person, but it is 
the clergy's responsibility to carry people through their whole lives. Um, you know, a teacher has a class for a year or mm-hmm. two. Right. A nurse has a patient for as long as they're on the floor. Um, the social worker has the person until they're able to sort of pass through. We have them until the day they die or leave the congregation, also sure. an option. And so it's really easy to get enmeshed right. <laughs> in people's lives. Um, and it's very hard to take a step away. Um, I have some good friends with seminary. We have phone calls, I mean, multiple times a week because we're in small congregations. We share a lot of things in common in our ministry. And, you know, even when we're calling on our days off, ostensibly to have, you know, personal conversation, uh-huh. like nine times out of 10, three quarters of that conversation is like, this person in my congregation is experiencing this and what would you do? How would you handle it? Do you have some suggestions? What, you know, how would you explain? We don't ever lay them down. Because it's a vocation. It's a vocation. Right. We're called to this work. And most of us feel that like deeply within ourselves, that this is the work to which we are called. And so it's very hard to set our congregations down, to let them rest, to let ourselves rest. Um, and I mean, in some respects too, there's a bit of a control freak part of it, right? Where it's like, do I trust that, you know, whoever else is in charge of pastoral care, my congregation is going to do it adequately. Um, I generally fall in the category of, yes, I do trust that. (laughs) Um, but I think that for some clergy people, that's a big concern. Are they going to, you know, do it? appropriately and adequately and certainly there are situations where i'd be like yeah i'm gonna deal with that (laughs) um and i think that's a huge a huge part of it is that vocation and also that sense that these are our people so what can congregations do to help their clergy unmesh Mm-hmm. What can, what can, because we have many thousands of listeners to this show who belong to many different kinds of faith traditions. What can we encourage them to do to help their clergy person stay healthy? Um, uh, and I mean healthy physically and emotionally, mentally, intellectually, all, all these kind of things. What can we encourage people to be doing? Yeah. I mean, I think. <laughs> The first, and to so many clergy people, the most obvious is respect your clergy person or your religious leader or whatever you call them. Respect their days off. And if they don't have days off, get to work with whoever is in charge of sort of the personnel and make sure that they have days off. Right. Not just vacation. Right. But like a day of the week that is at least one, preferably two, (laughs) that is set aside for them to grocery shop, go on a hike, go for a walk, spend time with their family, and then respect that time. Um, Try not to call them. Try not to text them. Um, And I think, too, make sure that they have adequate vacation and make them take it. Or, well, you can't make them take it, but strongly (laughs) encourage encourage them them. to take it. Be excited for them when they go. And be excited when they come back and want to hear about it, but also respect that this was their time away. And if it, they don't want to talk about it, right. they don't have to talk about it. Um, and I think we were just talking about how this is a vocation. Yeah. But remember, too, that it is a job. Right, right. Um, and, and with a job, there are boundaries. 
And there are spaces in people's lives that are private. Right. Um, and allow your clergy people those spaces. Um, allow them to have things that are their own. So maybe one of the ways to help them unmesh is to give them their boundaries mm -hmm. that they can say, this is my space. And so that they yeah. can form their own space. Yeah. Yeah. So I serve on what's called the Commission on Ministry, which is basically like our geographic regions, like group of people who check on the churches and the pastors. Right, right. And we do this thing called triennial visits, which is exactly what it sounds like. Every three years, we visit all every three through every three years, we visit all the yes. congregations in the Presbyterian. One of the questions we always ask the congregation, not the pastor, the congregation is, does your pastor take days off? Huh. Are those days off respected? Does your pastor take vacation? Do you respect their vacation time? Do they use all their vacation time? Do they take their study leave? Because we have two weeks of study leave, which is not vacation, it's work, but it's time away. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm, I'm noting this down, two weeks of study leave. Yeah, um, right. I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm, yeah. I shouldn't joke. I actually have a con congregation that turned to me and said, you haven't gone away on vacation. You need to go away. And I said, mm -hmm. you're just trying to get rid of me. And they said, yes, for you, mm -hmm. right? For you, actually, right. we, we want you to do this. We want you to be refreshed. We want you to come back and right. because you're tired, because, you know. And we, you and I come out of traditions that have a, a, a long history of sabbaticals. Indeed. Of a seventh year fallow. Yeah. And of course, it's not actually, a, you, for most folks, it's not a full year. It's two or three months. But that's another thing that we check in with them. Right. Hey, you are... You know, are you tracking for your clergy person sabbatical? Okay, are you preparing for your clergy mm -hmm. person sabbatical? You realize you have one year before they hit sabbatical, and we are going to expect that they take it. Right. Um, and so all of those things are to help a congregation remember that it's a two-way street, the relationship between clergy and congregant. L let me ask in our, our final five minutes, um, I, I, re I learned recently from the National Council for Mental Wellbeing um, an extraordinary eight-stage plan for self-care. And we've spoken about clergy, but, you know, there are so many caregivers in Santa Fe. Some, as you said, many paid, many unpaid. Um, this, this I, I thought it's worth us exploring just briefly this this plan for self-care, essentially. And it has these eight different elements, intellectual, emotional, environment, physical, spiritual, financial, community, and occupational. And the idea of creating a self-care plan around those eight things mm -hmm. for anyone who is a caregiver whether professionally or personally, to actually sit down with these eight areas and say, how are you taking care of yourself in these areas? I'll share them mm -hmm. once more. Intellectual, emotional, environment, physical, spiritual, financial, community, and occupational. What are your thoughts on seeing this plan? I mean, I, it's great. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Um, do approve. I think... If you are in the midst of being overwhelmed right. or beginning to be burnt out by caregiving, a list of eight areas in your life where yes. you need to like have a plan will feel wildly overwhelming. Yes. So if you are a caregiver listening, I would encourage you to pick one right. of the eight. 
Um, and it can be whatever one you want and set aside just like 10 minutes a day, you know, and if that's 10 minutes a day where you are going to prune the plants in your garden right. or 10 minutes a day where you're going to read a book for your own enjoyment or 10 minutes a day where you're going to call someone, a friend of yours who you haven't talked to, all of those things over the course of weeks will rejuvenate you. And then as they become part of your day-to-day practice, then you can start adding in another item from the list. Right. So now you are taking 10 minutes every morning and you're making sure all your plants are watered and maybe you're singing them a song. I hear that's good for plants. And maybe at the end of the day, you have done the dishes Mm -hmm. and you take your house keys and you go for a walk. Just a 10-minute walk around the block. And then that becomes part of your routine. And then from there, you can add other things in. And there are times and seasons in our lives where it may feel like there's no space for that. Right. And it feels like an extra burden to do them. I would never encourage a caregiver to add more (laughs) burden to themselves. Um, But I think remember that, you know, that that stupid airline thing about putting your own oxygen on first. um, For all that we like make fun of it. It's so true. What that leads me to, I really love the way that you read that because yes, eight things could be absolutely overwhelming. There's a, a, a term that has become used very recently. I know we've only got a couple of minutes. Revenge sleep procrastination, oh. right? Revenge sleep procrastination, <laughs> for those who don't know, is, is that people who are caregivers steal from their own sleep. I've triggered you here. I see this. Um, have, has steal from their own sleep oh to find quiet time, mm-hmm. to find time for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so revenge sleep procrastination is in fact extremely unhealthy, but mm-hmm. has become a very modern phenomenon with so many of us giving care to other people. Um, so I, I mentioned that not to uh, shame in any way, um, because I do it too, um, because it's quiet and it's calm and you mm-hmm. don't have the burden in air quotes. You don't have that. You can spend time for yourself. The key here with this eight-point plan of of self-care is not to do it at midnight or one o'clock because then you're even more burnt out. Right. Um, But it's to find it in in the day, in the normal day, Mm -hmm. and and particularly to be able to turn to the person you're caring for and say, give me 10 minutes. I'll be with you in a moment. I need to just sit and eat my dinner quietly or something like that. Right. Any any final thought? I was going to say, for clergy people, that's... That means scheduling it into your workday. Right. That part of your workday is some form of this. Um, is, is, you know, I'm going to read a scripture passage that has nothing to do with whatever I'm preaching on. Um, and uh, for those of you who are asleep, uh, what do we call it? Uh, revenge. Revenge, sleep, sleep procrastination. procrastination. Uh, me too. Yeah. Um, and like the best thing you can do for yourself is get like a good night's sleep and it's so hard i feel you it's so hard but it is way better to just go to bed than to sit and read mine is always playing stupid word games on the new york times (laughs) (laughs) but i'm always happier when i've gone to bed Reverend Madeline, thank you again. You know, when you come on this show, it is always so sensitive, emotional, real, grounding. Um, I really, I so appreciate you being here today and sharing this and and sharing such an important thing for all of us. Thanks. You've been listening 
to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My thanks again to Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Thank you for being here. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.